Indeed, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning in the way that you do through your servants in the earth, O Lord, and by the written word of God. We pray you will empower us to understand it as it is preached this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. You may be seated. We'll peruse again the same passage we've been looking at from Romans chapter 12. And I'll read some verses here beginning with verse 9. Paul writes, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate one to the other with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. O Father, may we rise to the occasion that you set before us by these words. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It occurs to me as I read that over for the umpteenth millionth time (laughs) that the whole thing is against human instinct. He's telling us, stop being so human. Be godlike. Be spiritual. Be lifted up by the spiritual component of your being that I have put in you in the Holy Spirit, that I have secured for you by the blood of Christ. Let love be without hypocrisy because I'm sick of the hypocritical type. Abhor what is evil. You know, I probably should say abhor means hate. In fact, some of your versions say hate what is evil. God hates evil. And though we like to say, well, he hates the sin, but he loves the sinner, it will be the sinner who finally perishes, right? And his sin with him. So parse that how you wish. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and to be found loving what God hates. Cling to what is good. Now we focused upon this last week quite a bit, particularly the first part of it. We spoke of genuine love. as compared with false, or what the apostle calls hypocritical love. Love, it seems, is the lost jewel of human society. We think we have it. We write love songs, right? We have romantic comedies. Let Let me be a spoiler for you in romantic comedies. Right up until the end, it seems like they won't get together, but they will. Just so you know, sorry to ruin your afternoon, but um, you know why? You know why they'll get together? Because they have fallen in love. They've fallen. Love is the lost jewel of human society. It is a deluded, diluted counterfeit. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that the Greeks started this whole thing. He knows about the plays of Aeschylus. 
in Euripides. He knows how love can be shown to be something hypocritical and other than what it is in the mind of God. Friends, love, if you think about it this way, theologically, it was corrupted at the very beginning because man was created to love God and the suggestions of God and the commandments of God, but they fell so easily for the suggestions of someone else. And love fell with it. It was corrupted from the very beginning. It's no wonder all down through the, the ages that the ancients thought love was much what Americans think it is today. It's this wonderful sort of fuzzy thing. So Paul's speaking to the saints of Rome regarding the doctrine of the church. See, this is what he's talking about. Friends, think about this. It's implied all throughout the New Testament that there is a church and that Christians are part of the church. Who are you supposed to love if you, what are you, alone? How do you love if you're alone? There has to be an object of the love. And that object begins with Christ, the head, and extends to the church, the body. It's implied, so he's teaching us body tactics here, how to be the church. So it's the doctrine of the church and the nature of our corporate union as the people of God. He's telling us how to be the church. And this aspect of love is quintessential to that union. There can't be a church without love, and a church without love is a synagogue of Satan. It in itself is hypocritical. Friends, love is a thing that the children of God have to get right, so let's get it right. It's non-negotiable. So Paul labors over the fruit and the character of genuine, genuine biblical love, and he contrasts it with the satanic counterfeit that the world around us blindly glories in. You know love by the fruits that it produces. You know love by the actions that it prompts. That's directly from the lexicon. Agape is known by the actions that it prompts. How could it not be? It's invisible. You can't see love. You can only see what love produces. You can, I want to say this this morning, and I I ran this over in my mind even as late as this morning. I think there's a sense in which we manufacture love. I think it wells up in us, and we create other places to exercise our love. It's sort of like Jesus made an investment in us, and the investment is accruing with interest. So Paul labors over that, the fruits and the character of love. And so contrary to what we hear of love in our time, it is not an emotion, at least not at its basic level. It's not an emotion. It's a thing that... The world sees it as a thing that you could just be fallen into. And if you don't fall into it, well, alas, you have no love. You're left out. You're left behind. We find, as we read this, that we've been duped about that. Love isn't something that we just trip over. It's something that we act on. It wells up in us. It wants to be expressed. It wants to embrace the object of its love just as Christ does. So you see, love from beginning to end is always about mindful choices, not glandular chemical reactions. Oh, I thought we had chemistry. Friends, it's not about chemistry. And you know what else it's not about? I wish we could get rid of this idea of compatibility. It's a myth. It's a myth. We had two friends, two young friends that used to come to church Many years ago, they moved away. It was Todd and Angie. Anyone remember Todd and Angie? And Angie could sing. Remember how she could sing? It was like an angel. And Todd could sing, too. And they could play instruments, and they'd play for us, and they'd sing. And we'd say, they're so compatible. They love music together. And Angie says to Karen and I, music's the only thing we fight about. It's a myth of compatibility, friends. Liking the same things isn't true compatibility. Loving the same Lord is compatibility. Try not to make it too much more complicated than that. Remember, 
The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. We choose what we'll do with the love that God gives us. We choose how to exercise it. It just doesn't come over us and we fall into it. We're not its plaything. We are its master. And it has to be that way, and I'll show it to you today. How could it be commanded of you if you weren't in control of it? How could God say, love one another as I have loved you, if you didn't control it? He didn't say, I'm going to pray that you fall in love with one another as I fell in love with you, all by glorious accident. No, he said, love one another. He even said, love your enemies. Talk about putting away your instincts. Enemies ought to be despised and hated according to human instinct. And yet Christ says, love them. And by the way, in the reading this morning, when Jesus became the really vile party guest at Simon the Pharisee's house, he was loving them. Let's not forget that, right? He was speaking the truth in love. And they should have been happy and gracious that he even came and that they could hear from him. Friends, don't invite a prophet to your house just to hear what you want to hear because if you hear that, he ain't a prophet. So we have spiritually motivated choices. Love your enemies. Love one another. Husbands, love your wives. So love, it seems, is in our power to offer or to withhold. It's both. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. So taking the verse as an organic whole, all three parts, we find that genuine love is genuinely connected to goodness. He's telling you how to love without hypocrisy. To love without hypocrisy, you hate what God hates and you love what God loves. Cling to what is good. And so genuine love is genuinely connected to goodness, and genuine goodness is connected to truth. Paul is explicit about this relationship in the love passage from 1 Corinthians, where it is said of love that it does not rejoice in iniquity. Friends, we all have friends that rejoice in their sins. For one reason, they don't know their sins. Why? Because everybody's doing it. Don't be a and everybody's doing it kind of person. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but it does rejoice. It rejoices in the truth. Friends, you have truth given to you, proclaimed to you every week from this pulpit and from other places within the local church. Glory in that. Not all churches are doing it anymore, sort of falling on hard times. I was talking with one of the men this morning who is in a debate with evangelicals about whether or not we work our way into heaven. Works and faith. Works and faith. Friends, good works are the fruit of salvation, not the cause of it. In fact, if, if you commit a good work before you're saved, it is by definition not good. Isaiah said, all my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Even trying to gain what only Christ could give by his sacrifice is arrogance to the Lord. And it spits in the face of the offering of Christ's body. Oh, that's good what you're doing, dying for me on the cross. I think I can do better. I can add to that. Think of that. In the face of God. Put it that way, it makes it pretty disgusting, doesn't it? (laughs) So we find that love is a discerning thing. It knows good from evil. Something in us teaches us what good from evil is. It doesn't taste good. Evil doesn't taste good and love does. That's why Paul could write to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 9, I pray that your love may abound or increase, right? Even more and more in what? In knowledge. I am increasing your ability to love by increasing your knowledge right now as we talk. Well, God is using me to do that in the church. 
that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Love discerns. Love is increased by knowing more about the object of our love, which is Christ. Remember Paul's warning to the Thessalonians where he wrote this? The coming of the lawless one, and he is coming, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Don't believe every wonder. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive what? The truth? No, the love of the truth. They did not love the truth. People ought to be scratching at the door to get in the churches. They ought to be, I love the truth, I've got to hear it. If I have to make a hole in the ceiling and drop my brother down, that's what I'll do. And we know that was done in Capernaum at Peter's house. If you go to the Gospel of Mark, you'll find that was definitely Peter's house. So God would have us discern good from evil truth from cleverly designed counterfeits of truth. All right? But note, the command to love God, to love the truth of God, is unconditional, and it comes with an expiration date. It isn't forever that you get to choose. Love comes with an expiration date. How do I know? Because Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians as well. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion, that they may believe the lie. In other words, your time for rejoicing in the truth is up. Now I'm going to have you believe the lie and have no way out. Romans 1 runs with that that theme. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Men with men committing what is shameful. Women leaving the natural use for the man and committing in themselves what is evil before God. God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those vile things between them. Right? God eventually gives up. He's a long-sufferer. But he's not an eternal sufferer. He suffers long, but not forever with you. There's an expiration date. It's fearful that they would believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You're having a lot of pleasure these days. You know, I always, I'm always skeptical of pleasure because it can always go south on you, right? <laughs> and the Christian has to be concerned about that. If the context is intended in the verse, you know, it has three parts. Love without hypocrisy, abhor what's evil, cling to what is good. If the context is intended, those three things are put together, not just haphazardly thrown together. If it's intended, and it always is with Paul, then the first part of the verse is conditioned by the second and third. Genuine love has to do with discernment of good and evil. For a man of God needs to know what to love and what to reject. And if you don't know, come ask me and I'll tell you. I've probably already been down that road. Or some other mature Christian in the church. God hates some things, the Bible tells us. We don't like to speak of God in the context of hate, but the Bible's very clear about these things. These six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. You've heard these, right? A proud look. (laughs) He hates when you look smug. He doesn't like a proud look. Why? Because it's pr- pride is behind the look. It isn't the look he's worried about, believe me. A lying tongue. Oh, friends. Ladies one speak truth to his neighbor. Hands that shed innocent blood. Oh, Lord. Looking down upon this world right now. Hands that shed innocent blood. For what? For gain. For power. For money. I don't know. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, premeditated evils, right? You know, even in law, if you premeditate the murder, in other words, plan it out beforehand, rather than have it be a crime of passion of the moment you just lost it and kills the person, the first one is worse because you planned it, and the second one is is less uh, evil because, well, we have some understanding of Human passions. A heart that devises wicked plans the Lord hates. Feet that are swift in running to evil. Oh, my word. You look at the world today, that's so common. 
Let's run to it. They're having fun sinning over there. Let's get tickets. A false witness who speaks lies. Oh, my word. I just think of a hospital that blew up. Do you know what I'm talking about? He who pleads his cause first seems right, Proverbs 18.1, until his neighbor comes and examines him and does some forensic tests <laughs> and finds out that isn't what happened. It was an oops on your side that killed all your people. A witness, a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. That's a wicked thing in God's sight for there to be discord. There's always going to be some level of discord, but the one sowing it, the one wanting it, the one wanting to see people strike out at one another. What an, what an awful instinct. And love is against all those instincts. But every one of those things the Lord hates are entirely natural and part of our race, who we are. In order that one might express authentic agape love of God in the church, that love has to become sharpened. It has to be honed to distinguish which part of our being is being lured by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are your three enemies. The world, the flesh, the world, the devil, and you are your enemies. Right? Lust, pride, ambition. In some sense, in literary folklore, lust, pride, ambition, self-promotion can all be seen as love. They can all be treated by a clever author to simulate love. And these things can gather together to confuse the genuine article with the false and the obscure, and obscure, excuse me, the godly character of love. But the believer is equipped. Paul puts the that fact on display that the individual dare not go it alone. Friends, the, be- the believer is equipped. Don't try to live the Christian life without a church. It's futile. And I've got news for you. It's, it's not the Christian life. Love is a corporate affair. For who does one love if there's no one there? It's almost a rhyme, isn't it? Eh. <clears throat> Hypocritical love is a poor facsimile. It's heralded as romantic, as sexual, as sentimental, as self-fulfilling. Friends, love is not self-fulfilling. That's part of the great myth of it. The love of Christ, the love of which the apostle speaks, may evolve into romance. I've got nothing wrong with a man romancing his wife, who he already loves, and has vowed to be with her permanently, Love has a permanence about it that today's sappy sentimental love has no notion of permanence. Love comes and goes. We grew apart. It can evolve into sentimental things, but it may not begin there. It isn't just sentimental and romantic. The love of which Paul speaks is an imitation of the love of Christ, and it always begins with a sacrifice, right? God so loved the world that he gave something to it, his son. He loved the world, so he gave his son, and his son died for the world. Always begins with a sacrifice. Love asks what it may give, to whom it may offer its embrace, Love wants to love. It wants to embrace, right? But it doesn't ask anything in return. That's where we lose it, I think. That's where we lose it. It's got to be this give and take. Marriage is 50-50. If you believe marriage is 50-50, you won't be married long. It's 100-100, or it's nothing at all. (laughs) That's the power of it. You're not just each throwing in a little bit and you get 100%. You get 200% if love's there. So it's heralded as romantic, as sexual, as sentimental, as self-fulfilling. But the love of Christ, the love of which the apostle speaks, is not that. And it always begins with a sacrificial spirit. Love asks what it may give and to whom it may offer its embrace. And we read this again. 
from the great hymn, 1 Corinthians 13, love suffers long. There's a song about that. It's called Love Hurts. Just kidding. I mean, there is a song. I don't really know what that song's about, but it came up in my mind. Love hurts. Love does not envy. Once you're envying the other person, how is it you could love? You're mad at them for getting a blessing. You're envying them for something they have. You don't. Love doesn't do that. Love's happy that you are what you are, if it's a good thing. Love doesn't parade itself. <laughs> I'm in love. From the, from the rooftops. It does not seek its own, meaning its own fulfillment. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Love and sin don't go together. But it does rejoice in the truth. Love bears all things. It endures all things. And it never fails. God is love. That's why. In our Thursday evening time together, we spoke of a counterfeit love that will produce counterfeit fruits. The romantic love of today's stage and screen portrayals are satisfied with things counter to genuine Christian love. We read from Ephesians. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. Love is an offering and a sacrifice to God. Friends, I hope I'm not taking the fun out of love for you, but... It is so much more fulfilling God's way. It's an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. What we did on Thursday evenings went into Leviticus 1. You know all those boring things about all the, you know, the minutiae about preparing the pigeon. And, oh, by the way, the pigeon, I have particular fondness for that sacrifice because you wring the neck off it. Um, and you put it down on the altar before God, and it bleeds in a certain way, and all these things, and then you burn it, right? For a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Now, he's not really sniffing the, the burnt offering, but he's rejoicing in your obedience and in your awareness that you need a sacrifice. You're guilty of sin, and now you're cognizant of sin. And the sacrifice didn't wipe away the sin. The obedience... To do what God said wiped away the sin it atoned for you. It was faith all the time. And then Steve reminded us that burnt feathers don't smell good anyway. And it said a pleasing aroma to the Lord at least three times in that, in that one. So that's what it's talking about, a sweet-smelling aroma. It's talking about a sacrifice. But fornication and all uncleanness of covetousness Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. So if there is a false love that's becoming more and more common today among our brethren, it is undoubtedly fornication. That's the sin of the age. We've belittled it so much. See, once something becomes common and you look at it and you say, it doesn't look so bad. It doesn't look so bad. And then you say, eh, everybody's doing it. And it's convenient. I mean, we, we have to live together. It's too expensive to do it the other way. So There's a crude old saying about fornication, about a man living with an unmarried, living with a woman unmarried. It says, why buy the cow if you get the milk for free? Pretty crude, right? But I don't think I have to explain to you what that means. <laughs> Right? You're getting all the benefits of marriage, or you think you are, but, but you don't have the permanence and the vow and that, and that divine love between you. It really has become sort of a friends with benefits relationship. Love is not a friends with benefits thing. It can never, fornication can never fulfill the spiritual needs of a true believer. If you're taking pleasure in the fruits of such a false thing as this, you are in great eternal danger. Why do I say that? Because Paul writes this, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Be careful what the fruits of your life are. They reveal your inward nature. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Those who say, I don't worry about it, everyone's doing it. Dan's just a little old-fashioned on this point. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Try to modernize that. So we see that an idolater worships a false god and a fornicator indulges a false love. MacArthur writes this, It should not be surprising that the misguided quest for that kind of love leads inevitably to immorality and impurity because that kind of love is selfish and destructive. A deceptive counterfeit of God's love. It is always conditional, always self-centered. It is not concerned about commitment, but satisfaction. It is not concerned about giving, but only getting. It has no basis for permanence. Because its purpose is to use and to exploit rather than to serve and to help. It lasts until the one loved no longer satisfies or until she or he disappears for someone else. Now as I read that, I think of the church. Because as I said, Paul's teaching us the doctrine of the church. All this loving he's talking about isn't necessarily marital love. It's agape love. It's the love between the brethren. So when I think about that, when I think about that lack of permanence, that fearfulness of committing, I would make the point here that the very kind of love which we see, the very kind of love that MacArthur just talked about is what we see in the pilgrim seekers among our evangelical friends who travel about church to church seeking whom may serve them best, seeking who may serve up to them what they want to hear. We know that in the last times, men will be lovers of themselves, right? Itching ears, it said to Timothy. Heaping up teachers that scratch the itch. There's these people that never settle in the church. Why is that? That's because they don't love the church. They're judging it. They've got a checklist. I've seen the checklists. I've shown them to you. They're online. There's a checklist. Look for this in a good church. Check, check, check. Oh, you didn't check it off. If you don't check it off, add it to it. So these are not concerned with any permanence in their love relationship with God's church. And so they're constantly on the move, and no one can keep them for long. For who can meet their every self-perceived need? Who can serve their counterfeit hunger for love? They really know nothing of the love of God, <clears throat> which the Lord speaks of, where he said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. How do you even preach the gospel without a church base? What do you tell people you do on Sunday? Or where you go? Or who your friends are? I had a woman say to me once a long time ago, she said, oh, yeah, we go to that little church up and so-and-so up on the hill. Our pastor's a, a great man. And she, she went, honey, what's his name? <laughs> she didn't know the guy's name. If you have love for one another, you will be seen as my disciples. So with regard to this one-way, non-permanent, self-satisfying love, we may speak of their relationship and accountability to a local church. The love of Christ cannot be separate from the love and devotion due the church. You cannot go to Christ in that judgment that was read about, that we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Imagine going before the Lord and saying, I've loved you so much. The people you chose, not so much. I don't think you get away with that. And you don't have to say it, because he already knows it. Because you didn't exercise the love. You have to make the choice. Love chooses. If such a false, is such a false love indicative of a false assurance of salvation? Well, undoubtedly it is. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need that anyone should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. If you're saved, you're taught by God how to love. You, you have an innate access to the knowledge that he's teaching here. The true believer is invested with this right and godly concept of love at the moment 
you receive Christ. The ability to love begins in you. It takes birth. It's conceived in you. And by teaching and accountability and being loved in return, that love abounds still more and more in knowledge and discernment. So love, in a sense, cannot be taught, can it? It's a gift. In other words, the essence of love is imparted by the Holy Spirit when you first believed, and his indwelling presence may be sharpened by teaching as you walk with God in the company of other believers. So if you're not saved, you can't be taught how to love. MacArthur comments again, he said, Being taught by God, the true child of God knows intuitively that he is to love his spiritual brethren. For the very reason that God is our common heavenly Father, love for each other should be as natural and normal as family members' affectionate love for each other. And we talked about that at length last week. It's called Philadelphia. That's the word. I wish that was a better city because the word is such a good word. John takes the whole notion of Philadelphia right down to the most elemental, practical level. He says this, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Are obvious. We're like, well, I don't know if he's saved. No, it's obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. It's obvious. The apostle's not remiss to offer us real-life applications. So for genuine Christian, Christian love holds the brother or sister accountable to a righteous lifestyle. We speak the truth in love for your benefit. Jesus came to Simon the Pharisee's house, and he told them all off. And the lawyer said, it sounds like you're talking against us too. And he goes, you're just as bad. Woe is unto you. Can you imagine when they're all leaving? Oh, thank you so much. That was, <laughs> I'm so glad you invited me. I mean, I don't know what that would have been like. but <clears throat> So again, from Ephesians, we talk about you love someone by speaking the truth in love. And sometimes the truth is you got to knock that off. You should be fearful for judgment by the way you're living and the fact that everyone can see it. It's not a secret. It's obvious, John says. And so Ephesians, by speaking the truth in love, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. We just talked about the gifts and the body, right? Everyone is essential. It causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Edify, when you hear edify, always think build up, increase, abound edify you're building it up the body builds itself up notice the individual can't build himself up he's bound to what every joint supplies we're all bound together we're knit and joined together by what every joint supplies that's the body of christ when christ comes back i want there to be a body praising him that he knows love each other in him i want to make sure they they have that Every part does its share, and it causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In other words, you can't do this alone. Tried living that without a church. The interruption of the Spirit who saved us has another, a more basic proof of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. I'll make it very simple for you, as John did. Whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Boy, I'm glad I'm not in your shoes. Look at you. I've got all this and you've got nothing. The, brother, the loving brother cannot have that attitude. That just doesn't work. And of course, I exaggerate it. No one would ever say it that way. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him. Don't withhold good things from someone in need. It's, it's contrary to love. So clinging to what is good is part and parcel of genuine Christian love. A believer cannot love rightly who acts badly. And when I say that, I mean continually badly. Right? A person cannot be on his way to heaven while for all appearances his lifestyle (coughs) reveals that he's on his way to hell. It has to look like something at some point. 
We come in with a lot of baggage, but we're supposed to grow, right? Remember our witness. Remember our example is part of our responsibility to who? To Christ, to the church, to the world, and guess what? To the devil. God wants us to be a witness to the devil that people like us can be loved of God and will be made like him when we see him. And he cannot have that. It's a witness even to him. So abhor what is evil. It stands to reason that if you love without hypocrisy, that you'll first recognize what's evil and take practical steps to avoid it. To enter into an adulterous or a fornicating relationship is counter to the teaching of the spirit who resides in the true believer. That spirit who resides in you is on a constant campaign to convict you when you sin. If he's in there, he won't leave you alone. If you're sinning and not convicted, probably not in there. If you become comfortable in sin, you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It seems to me we can make that connection. These are tests. And the surest test of salvation is hatred of what is evil, which is the other side of love. Evil is the antithesis of holiness and of godliness. It is to be rejected. And remember, that does not refer to actions or behaviors or lifestyles alone, though these ought to go without saying. An abhorrence of evil must begin with a love of the truth. It has to be both. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. I say that over and over, right? To reject the truth of Christ is to reject Christ. It's unthinkable to be standing before Christ at the last judgment. This is always the test, right? It's like, I'm so glad you saved me and made me a Christian. I'm so happy and I praise you all my life. Although, if you've got a minute, there's a couple things I disagree with. You know, it, that isn't how it's going to go for the true believer. All right? To embrace evil is to reject the love of Christ. To disregard the counsel of the church... The only receptacle of the spiritual gift is to reject the counsel of Christ. How do you think you're going to be counseled by God? Sitting under the tree, praying it by the pond in the morning instead of with the body, and he'll speak to you, and you'll hear the chirping of the birds and the rustling of the grass, and so you will be with the Lord. There's nothing in Scripture that talks about that way. It's always the gifts of the Spirit. So if you want to be counseled in Christ, it's through the church. That's the receptacle. We are the custodians of the oracles of God. It's a gift to us. It's a responsibility. Can you imagine this? To say I love God and to live in sin diminishes the whole message of the holiness of God. I love God, but I live in sin. And it may corrupt the walk of other brethren of whom you owe this sacrificial love. You have to be careful about other people. So the apostle writes this. He brings it right down to application. Be kindly affectionate to one another. With brotherly love. That's Philadelphia. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Do not grow weary in doing good, in other words. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And the list goes on. We read, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be steadfast in prayer. Contributing to needs. And so, as you might have presumed, generosity and hospitality are practical hallmarks of a true Christian witness. You can't really be a stingy Christian. So Paul says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. He then goes on to what such an effort might look like. So it begins with honor. Show honor to one another. Honor the brethren. It ensues with preference. Prefer one another. Friends, I dined with friends just a few nights ago. I would so have preferred to have dined with you. But there is love of the world as well, right? And so as you might have presumed, generosity and hospitality are practical hallmarks of love. But there is a certain love that is reserved for the brethren. Philadelphia, love of brother, right? Galatians 6.10, let us do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. 
So like in other places, we find that every spiritual effort of the believer must not grow weary in doing good. And so no lagging in diligence. Loving doesn't ebb and flow, or it shouldn't. Your kind affection, your giving of honor to the brethren must be a constant exercise of your every spiritual instinct. And I love this, be fervent in spirit. That's a good word, fervent. I don't think we use fervent enough. I like it better than zealous. It means displaying a passionate intensity. You know, Karen and I would talk about sometimes, you'll see, uh, I don't know, maybe a TV commercial or maybe something said in a, um, you know, in a play or a skit or something, and people are like, oh, it's my passion. Oh, this is my passion. I do this. This is my, I run. I jog. This is my passion. Everybody has all these passions. I'm like, to her, I don't have any passions. I'm a boring guy. I don't have any hobbies. I don't have any passions, you know. But that isn't what it's talking about. Be fervent in spirit. Show passion in your love for Christ, it's talking about. Not in your love for pickleball. So you can show that, so you can show that you're not aging. That's the new thing. I'm not aging. The new national sport, you know, pickleball. I don't even like the name of it. I, wouldn't, I will never play. Friends, how could the love of Christ be anything but fervent? Could you imagine? Imagine saying to your wife, honey, I love you, but not passionately. You know, I, I love you, but let's not get carried away with commitment and mutual purpose. That's for boring people. Let's take it a day at a time. I love you today. Tomorrow, bring what may. There's no use speaking, making vows about permanence, death to you pot, sickness and health. Richer or poorer? No, no thanks. I I married you for your money. Everyone knows it. You know, you signed the prenup, you know it. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And by the way, that whole skit I just did shows the cheapness of worldly love, doesn't it? Because I I don't think I even exaggerated it. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And so the lesson continues on how to love. If you love someone, you rejoice with them when they're happy. It makes you happy that they're happy. But that's not natural. Someone else's happiness should make you mad. You've been left out while they were blessed. I hope they choke on their happiness. I can't stress it enough. It's the lost message to the church today who see Christianity as an individual journey. It is not. And note the order. Note the order. Rejoice comes first. Now, Lloyd-Jones put me on to this, but I've always thought it. Why rejoice first? I think that's the hard part. It comes less naturally. When someone's weeping, you hear a sad story. People cry. If I start crying up here, a lot of you will be crying. Here, I'll show you. No. Eh. But I wonder if someone else's good fortune is challenging to us. Do we not like it? Oh, yeah, that's, that's nice. I'm happy for you. I mean, according to the apostle, the answer in the natural is no. We don't rejoice with those who rejoice. We're not happy that they're happy. We're happier when they're sad and they need us. I'm just saying that's the natural thing. A gain for one, though, in the church is a gain for all. I'll tell you what, it changes a little bit with your kids. Like, I can say that my kids have um, exceeded me in wisdom or in in, uh, the the things that they've accomplished, accomplishments. I can say that, and it doesn't take away from my, but that's, that's pride in my kids. You see what I mean? It's not necessarily a good thing. So in some sense, we do that with our own family, maybe, the rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, But when we see people around us being blessed, it doesn't always make us feel good in the natural. But it's supposed to. It's a test. It's a test. A gain for one is a gain for all if agape is present. A win for you is a win for us all, for we all rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, a warning for those of you young parents who have yet to read my book called Raising Adults. 
You'll never cultivate this instinct of rejoicing with those who rejoice. You'll never cultivate that in a totally depraved toddler. That's our doctrine, right? Our kids are totally depraved, right? You'll never cultivate that in them um, if you treat them all as equals. Don't treat them as equals. Give, give a lesson. Do, a, do an exercise. I used to do that with my boys. I had three boys, and I'd take them all to the store, and I'd buy new shoes for one of them. Now, it doesn't make me a bad parent. It wasn't like the other ones went shoeless the rest of their lives. It was today you're going to learn to rejoice that Joe got something new that you didn't get today. And they're very good at that to this day. They're very pleased when the brother exceeds them or does well. There's a great scene in um, Errol Flynn's Robin Hood way back in, I think it's 38. And he comes out, you know, Errol Flynn's in the green suit, you know, with the hat, and he's all handsome and debonair. And he comes out on the log across the, the river, right? And John Little's coming the other way, and he towers over him, and they get their staffs, and they challenge each other. And, of course, little John, John Little, Robin Hood names him little John. He whacks, whacks him over the head, knocks him into the water. Robin Hood's all humili humiliated. He's in the water. And, of course... Little John's trying to join the merry men, and he says, I didn't know you were Robin Hood. I never would have done it. He says, nonsense. I love a man who can best me. That's rejoicing with those who rejoice. Nonsense. I love a man who can best me. Think of that when, that, when the trial comes, when someone else is doing well. So don't treat your children equally. God isn't equitable, friends. He isn't fair. Because you were born in the United States of America and other people were born in Zimbabwe. You follow me? There's no, there's no equitable thing with God. We don't get that. Some people are born to good and loving parents and other people, not so much. Parents were kind of abusive, kind of tough on them. Really challenge you to even think parents are a good thing, right? No, we're not treated equally. I had good parents. Maybe yours weren't so good. I don't know. But once we are admitted into our father's house, we're all blessed children. We all love him and trust his choices for us. I'll tell you, when the kids were little, <clears throat> Joseph was a baby. He was crying. Oh, man, I could have thrown him out the window. He cried. He cried all the time. He was the worst crier. I finally... Got mad one night. It was like 9.30. We're trying to go to sleep early, you know. I turned on the light. Let's just get up. Make coffee. We're going to be up all night now with this kid. I mean, it got like that. And so Karen and I are sitting up, and we're nursing Joe. No one knows what's wrong with a baby. You know how that goes. You know, it might be this. It might be that. It's never any of those things. He's just making noise. He's ruining everything. And what happens? Daniel comes down the stairs, 10 years old. What are you doing here? If he can be up, I can be up. I'm like, oh, you want me to treat you like Joe? Yes. I picked him up, threw him in Joe's crib, his big monster in the crib. And he's like, and he's crying and saying, what, what are you doing? I'm like, this is what I do with Joe. Now spread your legs, baby, because the diaper's going on. No, you don't treat them the same. Don't treat them the same. Story gets better every time I tell it. <laughs> Friends, some are born in splendor, some in plenty, some in lack and squalor. But once we're admitted to our father's house, we're all his blessed children, and we all love him, and we trust his choices for us. And the same <coughs> ought to be true in your house. Not every child is equally gifted, right? Neither are they equally deserving of the same benefits. Nor are they equally trustworthy. Sometimes you can trust one and not the other. So there's no natural need to treat your children equally. Teach them to rejoice with those who rejoice. And when your brother's sad, it should bring sadness upon you. And it should be genuine. You can teach them to rejoice with the blessings of the other child if you're careful to do these things. Covetousness is the most natural instinct in us all. Covetousness, right? Wanting what someone else has. You know why, what covetousness is from? I've thought this through a bit. You want it not 
not because you want what the other guy has, but you want it because he has it. It's that insipid a thing. The natural thing is to see is to want, right? To see is to want. If you lock your car and there's some valuables in there, cover them up with an old dirty blanket or something. To desire is to connive, and to have is to gloat. (laughs) You don't have this. (laughs) That's the other side of covetousness. You're just as covetous as him. And you're glad that he's not happy now. So you have to model the joy of another's blessing. And to the others, their time will come. Their need will be fulfilled. You won't be left out, friends. You'll be just what God wants you to be and where he wants you to be. And they can be made confident that their father is mindful of their needs. My boys never doubted my love. I dare say that out loud. Never doubted it for a minute. Um, They saw it. Discipline is an embrace of a loving father, and children recognize it. So verse 17, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And be made confident that your father is mindful of their needs and that waiting for your need fulfilled, waiting is a virtue. It's not a vice. Waiting will only build character in you. Having, not so much. Verse 17, the first part, repay no one evil for evil. So while you're seeking to overcome Natural instinct, put away vengeance, friends. I hear Christians so proud of their vengeance that these things ought not to be so. We are not a vengeful people. A lot of people have what I've heard called Irish Alzheimer's. Have you heard of this? Well, there's only a few people you can make fun of anymore. Uh, Christians, certainly. White Anglo-Saxon Christians can be made fun of with impunity in the public square. I think Irish people can still be made fun of, and I know us Italians can be made fun of. So I could call it Italian Alzheimer's, if you like. Um, But that's when a person forgets everything except his grudges. They call it, I've heard it called that. Catherine Hepburn said to Humphrey Bogart, an African queen, she dumped all his liquor into the water and when he woke up from a stupor after a drunk, he looked, and there's all his gin floating down, and he has no more gin, right? And he said, but a man needs a drink once in a while. It's only natural. And she said, nature, Mr. Allnut, is what will put on this earth to rise above. Very famous line. We rise above our nature. Yes, we, we feel like repaying evil for evil, but you've got to rise above that. So watch African Queen tonight, right after you read Leviticus chapter 1. The rest of the chapter is a lesson on just what's expected of the child of God who has been wronged or offended. You overcome evil, that is negative instincts, by putting on the positive. It's taught very well in Ephesians where it says, Let him who stole steal no more, but let him labor, working with his hands, that he might have to give to someone who has a need, right? So the opposite of stealing is giving. But it's not giving what you stole, it's giving what you worked for. Good instincts overcome bad instincts. So put on good instincts. The good must be exercised in order for the evil to remain submerged. The vengeance has to be submerged. Vengeance is not a good thing. That's why I say don't tell people off. It only makes you feel good for a moment, and then you won't like it. So begin with abstaining from the natural response. When something bad is done to you, when you're offended, don't respond so quickly. Abstain from it. And consider the sovereignty of God in all these things. Beloved, he writes, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And the Lord will do it rightly. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, you'll keep coals of fire upon his head. 
And so he gives the application, and so he gives the spiritual explanation as well. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how we do it. And if the spiritual injunction implies anything, it implies the power of the believer over any evil that may befall him. You have power over your instincts. You are not their plaything. It can only destroy you if you give in to your evil instincts. Overcoming evil is in your hand. You have the power to do it. So long as love is without hypocrisy, you'll have the presence of mind and the spiritual will to submit to an evil done to you and defang it. Take the power away from the evil. There's no more essential Christian attitude than not returning evil for evil. And so I'll end with this These verses from Peter who spoke of Christ. In this regard he said. For to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us. Leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten. But committed himself to him who judges righteously. Our Father, let us apply these teachings to our lives and let us glorify you and edify one another in the effort. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.